Welcome, folks. It's a Sunday here on The Ben Shapiro Show, and we are doing something that we do pretty much every Sunday. We are going through the mailbag. Now, to have your question answered in The Ben Shapiro Show mailbag, you actually have to be a subscriber at Daily Wire Plus. So head on over to dailywireplus.com, and it could be you having your question answered by me. And my God, wouldn't that be an honor for you? Chris says, hey, Ben, love the show. When Nikki Haley talked about giving mandatory mental health screenings for presidential nominees over 75, I initially thought it was a great idea. The more I thought about it, the more I was scared by it, the more I wonder if Nikki Haley has the capability to be president. Maybe I'm being too strict in my thinking, but this seems like it could be very easily twisted against all common sense and decency. This seems like it could be easily changed to include something like accepting gender-affirming care as a box to check in order to be declared competent. My questions are, could this mandate be used in the way I just explained? And if so, does this reflect someone whose intentions may be good, but who doesn't have the foresight to see what could happen? Well, um, I mean, I think that the idea here of being given a mandatory mental health screening Presumably, everyone would have to agree as to what that looks like. Otherwise, nobody's going to care about the results. If you show the public that one of the questions is, do you accept that men are women? People are going to be like, no, that's not a mental health screening. That's, that's a left-wing screening. If the idea is, can you repeat these seven words in order? Fox, purple, blue, green, grass, car, chicken. And the person's like, well, that might be a good indicator. They're not up to the task. Rob says, dear Ben, I'm writing to you because I had a dream on Sunday night in which I asked you what it would take to create my own podcast. And you responded that I should, quote, increase my reading speed and read a lot, presumably about whatever my show could cover. I'm wondering, what would the real Ben say? Well, I've never said people need to increase their reading speed. People just want to do it. As far as read a lot, yes, I agree. Also, you really have to overprepare for a podcast. So people think that the magic of this show just sort of happens off the top of my head. That is very not true. There's a lot of prep that goes into the show. Every word that I say is a word that I have thought or written. I'm not reading anybody else's thoughts. No one else designs my show. I design where the clips go. I design where everything else happens in the show. If there's a monologue that's pre-written, which is extremely rare on the show, most of the monologues are out of, the, out of my head. I write that stuff. That means that you really have to over-prepare for shows. What people don't really think about when they do a show is what happens when you run out of things to talk about. What is your go-to? So for me, my go-to has never been emotion. There are other hosts where their go-to is anger or their go-to is humor. Right? My go-to tends to be things that I know about, right? And so I read a lot. And that means that my go-to is information. I always am drawing new sources of information and trying to bring it to bear. So if I am, you know, stalling for time or something, I'll just start quoting philosophy or I will start talking about an abstruse geoeconomic topic. And that, that sort of stuff, that, again, that's my go-to. It doesn't have to be your go-to. A lot of these other go-tos work too. Jared says, hey, Ben, I'm a Christian man who's in a new relationship with a godly woman. We're dating with an intent on marriage. We've been sharing our faith and discussing our values on family, children, politics, etc. The other day we were discussing kids and the topic of circumcision came up. She's opposed to the practice and is convinced that circumcision is essentially male genital mutilation and cited a couple verses in the New Testament to back that. I've never really thought about it seriously considering my religious upbringing. And the Bible says it's covenant that men are commanded to make with God. I see her point about how we're basically being asked to change our body from how God originally made us. She agreed it's not a deal breaker for her, but we keep researching it and praying about it. Although totally dissimilar, I do think about other forms of body modification like cosmetic surgery, FGM, that's female genital mutilation in some Islamic communities, gender reassignment surgeries, any other ways humans make drastic changes to how God originally formed and created us and whether circumcision is in this category or not. So my questions for you are twofold. What are your biblically-based beliefs on circumcision and why is it important? And two, why do you think God made human males with a part of their body that needs to be surgically removed at birth as opposed to just creating us without it? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, Jesus would have been circumcised. Right, so that's number one. Jesus was a Jew. So even from a Christian perspective, the idea that Jesus would have been wildly anti-circumcision as opposed to saying that you don't need to get circumcised in order to enter the covenant, right, which would be according to the Gospels. Jesus himself would have, would have been a circumcised male, 
obviously. As far as my biblically-based beliefs on circumcision and why is it important, so the, the Bible basically says that circumcision is a sign of fealty between you and God. The reason for this is this is the most important male organ. And what you are doing is you are not diminishing its actual efficacy. Obviously, it doesn't diminish the ability to have children. You still have sexual pleasure from the organ. It's not like female genital mutilation in the sense that the explicit idea of female genital mutilation is to damage a woman so she cannot experience sexual pleasure. That is not the same thing with circumcision, right? There are medical arguments for, there are medical arguments against, but the basic idea is that what the Bible is calling on you to do is take the most animalistic part of yourself, namely your sex drive, and to subject that to godly command. That is the metaphysical reason for the, in Hebrew, brit milah, which we'll be doing, I pray to God, on my son when he is born in the next few weeks, entering a child into the covenant and saying from the very beginning, you have obligations in this world. And those obligations extend to the deepest parts of you, the most deeply driven, animalistic parts of you. That's a, that, that is the meaning of circumcision. Why do I think God made human males with a part of their body that needs to be surgically removed? Well, it doesn't obviously need to be surgically removed at birth in any medical sense. There are a huge number of, of human beings walking the earth right now who have not removed the foreskin. But the idea is, once again, that God created human beings with this so that we become partners with him. The purpose of a covenant is that you are making a sacrifice to God and God is, is joining you in accepting that sacrifice. It's not like a burnt sacrifice or something, but the idea is that you are making a, an actual contractual agreement. And the consideration here is that you are going to subject every part of your life, including your sex life, to the Almighty. Andrew says, hey, Ben, can you please explain what's going on in Israel with their judicial reforms? Why are so many people up in arms about it? Love your show. Listen every day. Thanks for all you do. Okay, so the, there, there's two issues with the judicial reforms. One is the actual judicial reforms, and the other is the underlying issue as to why Israelis are really mad about it. So when it comes to the actual judicial reforms, the actual judicial reforms basically come in a few varieties. In Israel, there's a selecting group that really is kind of self-selecting that determines who the Supreme Court justices in Israel will be. It's made up by members of the Israeli Bar Association, ex-Supreme Court justices, basically enough people who are on the left that they can maintain a veto power on future Supreme Court justices for all time. This keeps the Supreme Court left forever. And the right-wing coalition that just got elected, they said, we don't like this very much. We would like to have a say in who gets chosen to staff the Supreme Court. So that was change number one. Change number two is that the Supreme Court of Israel rules on whether laws are constitutional or not in a state where there is no constitution. Israel does not have a constitution. And they do so basically on the basis of what they call themselves, the rational. So if we don't like a law, we just knock it down. So the judicial reforms would have said, you don't get to do that. You don't actually get to say that just because you don't like a law, you get to knock it down. You have to have some good reason for doing that. Those were two of the big judicial reforms. There are a couple of others. One was jettisoned along the way. Why are people upset about this? Okay, so in order to understand why people are upset, you have to understand the demographics of the Jewish state. So basically, the Jews in Israel break down into four religious categories. There are people who are chiloni. Chilonim are secular Jews. You have people who are masorati, or traditional Jews, you know, people who keep Sabbath in some form, who keep kosher in some form, but they aren't fully orthodox. You have people who are dati leumi, which would be orthodox Zionists, right? Modern orthodox, very often. People probably who live like me mostly. And then people who are Haredi. Those are the ultra-orthodox. Well, the ultra-orthodox don't serve in the army, right? They're not drafted in the same way. They, they work at a much lower rate than the rest of the society. Only 50% of Haredi men are working. 78% of Israeli women, of Haredi women are working. Many of them are on welfare. The new coalition, the, so the demographics of those four groups, Chilonim, the secular, represent about half of that total. Masoratim represent maybe 25% of it. And then the Dati Lumi represent another, like, 
11 or 12 percent. And then the remainder are Haredi. Chilonim are looking at the other more religious groups and they're saying, you are reproducing faster than we are. This means that in future Knesset elections, you are likely to take a majority. If you are likely to take a majority and there is no check or balance because the judiciary is also able to be moved to the right, then we feel like we're in trouble. And particularly, they feel like they're in trouble because they feel as though maybe theocracy is on the way. Maybe these right-wing religious people are going to do theocracy. And then they look at the Haredim and they say, well, you guys aren't even serving in the army and you're not really paying a lot of taxes because you're not making a lot of money and you're taking a lot of welfare. And so all of these sort of bubbling resentments in Israeli life are now coming to the fore because Chilonim, who basically very since the beginning of the state have been more secular and want the Jewish state to really be a state of Jews, meaning a lot of Jews live there, but it doesn't have a particularly Jewish character. They're fighting it out with a group of people who believe that, it, that Israel should also have more of a Jewish character. That's really what the battle is about. The answer to this is to go slow and to negotiate. And over time, Israel is going to become more religious, just demographically. But also, it turns out a lot of people who consider themselves secular in Israel are still kind of Masorati. They still do some things that are religious. But all of the talk about how democracy is going to die in Israel, it's going to the end of the world. It's not. It really is not. It's just that the administration went too, too hard, too fast. James says, do you think Fox News is partially responsible for causing the January 6th riot? Now that they've essentially admitted to lying about election fraud through a massive settlement with Dominion, are they implicated in causing the January 6th riot? Does Dominion's act of suing Fox News and others over statements of possible election fraud give Dominion the appearance of being politically partisan? Well, I mean, Dominion basically had no choice. Dominion had to sue Fox News because if they did not, they would never make money again. There are too many people who are targeting Dominion. And what I mean by this, they make them voting machines. Let's say you're a Republican who's in an election office in a Republican state. You're going to use Dominion in the future? And open yourself up to the charge that maybe you're giving away the election by using Dominion. So Dominion basically has to sue everyone. That's what they're doing right now. As far as Fox News being partially responsible for causing the January 6th riot, you know my views on this, which are, if you've not heard them before, that you are not responsible for other people rioting unless you tell them to riot. Now, do I think that Fox News gave credence for far too long to a bunch of things that were not true from the Trump campaign about election fraud and voting machines and all the rest? Yes, I think that is clearly true. And obviously, Fox News thought they'd said enough damaging things about that that they settled for $800 million. With that said, did they cause the January 6th riot? I hold people responsible for their own actions. Fox News is responsible for facilitating things that I think were not true. We didn't do that on this show. You know, there are arguments to be made about the about who covered it better and all of that. That's People can think what they want. But the bottom line is, I do not hold Fox News any more responsible for that than I hold MSNBC responsible for the Black Lives Matter riots. In fact, I would hold MSNBC more responsible since many of them actually actively justified the riots. Stephen says, hey, Ben, you said on your show, it seems likely Andrew Lester will go to jail for life over the shooting. What is your legal analysis of this given Castle Doctrine under Missouri law, which allows deadly force if someone attempts to enter a dwelling unlawfully? So again, that's going to depend on the fact pattern. So it is not clear exactly whether Ralph Yarrell, the 16-year-old black kid who tried to knock on the door, was knocking on the door and was just shot through the glass, or whether he mistakenly attempted to enter the home. If he actually attempted to enter the home, then tough case to prosecute. Maybe Andrew Lester gets off and also... At that point, does it seem like a racial case or does it seem like there's an 84-year-old man who's worried about people entering his home? Somebody knocks and then attempts to break in, according to him. Right, so we don't know all the facts yet. We'll find out. Michael says, you've been giving your opinion on a lot of movies lately, just wondering what you think of The Lighthouse. I, could, I couldn't take it. I, I wanted to like it and I just couldn't. I couldn't take it. it was, it's two people yelling at each other nonsensically for an hour and a half. Maria says, hey, Ben, I'm a Reformed Baptist. My church is doing a study of Exodus right now. We got to the part about the building of the bronze altar, basin, and temple, and the sacrifices people make to God. As a Christian and believer in Jesus, I know the reason we no longer sacrifice to God like that is because Jesus died to pay the penalty for sinners once and for all. In my limited knowledge of Jewish religion, I believe you don't follow all the laws from the Old Testament, but some of them like Sabbath and not eating unclean meat. Could you explain why some but not all? How is it decided which laws still needed to be followed? So 
the sacrificial system in Exodus and in Leviticus did take place at the temple, right? Once the Jews go to Israel, the tabernacle is set up in Shiloh for about 400 years. And then eventually the Ark of the Covenant is moved to Jerusalem and the first temple is built by Solomon. And at that point, all sacrificial service is done at the temple. No place else is it allowed. When the temple is destroyed, sacrificial service therefore stops. It's true of the first temple. It's also true of the second temple. Once that happened, according to the Talmud, basically prayer then substitutes for the sacrificial service. So big debate inside, inside orthodoxy between Maimonides and others as to when the temple is rebuilt, because Jews believe it will be. When the temple is rebuilt, are those sacrifices reinstated? A lot of people say yes. So the answer then would be you go back to doing them. And then there's some people who say, this is what Maimonides sort of suggests, is that the entire sacrificial system was designed to move the Jews, the ancient Israelites, away from paganism. That sacrifice was common in the ancient world. And this was, in a, this was a way of taking sacrifice out of the realm of sort of magic and mystery and, de- and demystifying it and turning it into something holy. But the idea would be to move beyond that at a certain point. Elizabeth says, hey, Ben, I'd love to know how you managed to get so much done. Can you share your daily schedule and productivity habits with us? Thanks for all you do. Again, the, the key, I've said this many times, the key is you got to turn off the internet. You got to make sure that you don't pick up your phone for significant periods of time and you need to actually block out your day in hour chunks. There's no such thing as like a 15 minute chunk. It's got to be like at least an hour in order for you to get anything done. That's how I block out my day. So that means I'm blocking out an hour for working out. and I'm blocking out an hour for writing. I'm blocking out an hour to play with the kids. You got to block out the time or you're going to do it wrong. Carl says, for all the anecdotal and occasionally poll-driven reporting suggesting that even Trump's ardent supporters are ready to move beyond him because they want to win, I have doubts. My own impression is Trump's most loyal supporters, like him, have zero interest in the Republican Party's fortunes and are more than happy to nominate him and drive the party to another electoral disaster because they enjoy the spectacle of Trump on the national stage and don't necessarily need to see him as president. Trump's inability to attract anyone but loyal Republicans to the voting booth concerns them nary a whit. Some also seem to view the support DeSantis is getting from you and other prominent conservative figures, not to mention independents, with suspicion that he is part of the hated quote-unquote establishment. What do you think? I don't think it's true. I think most Trump supporters would like to see Joe Biden not be president. I think some of them are maybe just misreading the numbers or maybe they think that I'm reading the numbers wrong. I think most of them would like to see Biden defeat. I do think there's a core of people, like a very, very small core of people who don't care whether Biden wins or loses and they just want to vote for Trump because middle finger. But I think that's a small number. And I think many of the people who, uh, I will say the, the notion that if people like me prefer DeSantis to Trump, this is because we are quote unquote establishment. I don't even know what establishment means if that's the case. I really don't. I mean, the Republican Party has been attuned to Trump since he won the nomination. Trump is the establishment. There's just no other way to define establishment than that. I, I, like, what, what, what part of the Republican Party does he not dominate at this point? To define establishment in terms of belief system. Define it in terms of positions taken. I'd like to hear it, truly, because then maybe we can determine who's, most, who's more establishment, who's not. Again, right now, Donald Trump is, is campaigning on the basis that COVID lockdowns were, were better than non-COVID lockdowns in states like Florida. He's campaigning against Ron DeSantis going after Disney, which seems like a more establishment position. Alrighty, folks. So we'll be back here with our actual weekday Ben Shapiro show tomorrow. So stick around for that. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. 
Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.